Uh, Join me in uh, John chapter 16. John chapter 16. I'm going to look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. I know your worship guide says 1 through 15, but I'm going to stop at verse 11. Next week, Lord willing, we will look at 12 through 15 uh, as we look at more of the Spirit's work uh, and how it applies specifically to the church uh, today. But I want to focus in on 1 through 11 this morning. So once you turn there, uh, you can look up, and then once I uh, see uh, the eyes of many, I will read, and then we'll pray and ask God for his help during this time. So John chapter 16, verse 1, would you hear now the word of the Lord? Jesus speaking, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Uh, This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Father, we ask now that you would guide our time to the work of the Spirit at work through your word. Father, I pray that you would use this time for our good and your glory. May the name of Jesus be exalted high. May we learn even further understand what it means to see that it is to our advantage that the Spirit is here and Jesus is not presently bodily present with us. I pray, God, that you would encourage those who are heavy laden, that you would convict those that are high and haughty, that think they have no need for redemption. Would you draw your people to you through Christ? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's an old saying that goes to be forewarned is to be forearmed. In other words, when you know the battle ahead, uh, you can better prepare for that battle. Uh, This is played out in a lot of different scenarios. Uh, If you've ever been on a, a team and played any type of sports, you know that you practice for what's ahead. Uh, Sometimes you may watch a film of the team that you're going to play against. Uh, Your coach tries to prepare you for for whatever is about to come your way and whatever that team, the opposing uh, team may bring or throw at you. 
uh, in a fight. If someone's a boxer, they, they watch what the other player, the other person, their opponent, uh, what they're good at. They, they try to learn their techniques, their methods, so that way they can counter as they will. In war, in battle, there's strategies that come into place. There's strategy to think about what would be the best technique to go about in hoping to conquer our enemy. And that is just what Jesus Christ is doing here for his people. See, he's helping them to see that there is something that is ahead. There's a battle that is going to be brought to them once he leaves. But he does it in uncommon fashion. See, Jesus knows that his people are going to face great persecution. He knows that his disciples will be killed, will be harmed. And he says, listen, I understand this, but let me tell you, you will be prepared. Brothers and sisters, that is exactly God's word for us today. There are many things that we face in our day and age. There's much persecution that may even come as we see these days unfold. But we have no reason to fear. And what we see today in these verses are very uncommon because we wouldn't expect Jesus to say, you know what, you're going to go through these things and I'm going to leave. My, my, my presence in bodily form is not going to be with you. See, we wouldn't expect that to take place in the way that it does. But what we see is that in this text, Christ's departure is indeed to our advantage. It is indeed to our advantage. As we walk through this section of Scripture, I want to note three advantages of Christ's departure. For my note takers, let me give these to you. First, we will see Christ's departure provides opportunities to bear witness through persecution. Second, Christ's departure produces the Spirit's arrival. And third, Christ's departure brings greater clarity to the gospel. Greater clarity to the gospel. So let's look at this first one. Here, under the heading, Christ's departure provides opportunities to bear witness through persecution. So as we look down here at verse 1, we see a very clear statement from our Savior. Look at what he says. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Now, I dislike the phrase falling away here that the ESV translates. Uh, it actually, the word that is translated from, the original word here in the Greek is skandalizo. Skandalizo. And, and what that means is that it is to cause someone to stumble or cause them to sin. I think in our culture, when we hear the word falling away, we think of a permanent departure. And that's not what Jesus 
is saying here. I actually prefer the NASB uh, who says it translates it like this. These things I've spoken to you so that you will not be led into sin. Uh, the Legacy Standard Bible also uh, translates it like this. These things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. So while the ESV is our preferred uh, translation for preaching, uh, I don't prefer their interpretation translation here. The point is, is that all of Jesus's recent teachings, everything that he has been teaching the disciples up to this point is to prepare them for what? For the impending persecution. He says, I've taught you these things so that way what is to come you will be prepared for. You're going to be ready for it. And I don't want you to fall into sin. I don't want you to stumble. I don't want you to sin in the face of persecution. He goes on to provide two specific warnings of what's to come. So he not only says, I'm going to warn you, he, he, tells, you, he tells them, these are the things that will come. Verse 2, he says, they will put you out of the synagogues. So in Jesus' time, the synagogue was the center of life for the Jews. Uh, this was a very important aspect. See, we have many churches in our day. Uh, a lot of times, the church of our time, uh, you could be excommunicated from one church and you can go to another church uh, without even telling them about your excommunication. You could say, I left this church because I decided to leave, not that they put me out. And while the synagogue and the church today is, is different, I just want to uh, just communicate that point to us that then this was their way of life. There was the synagogue. Uh, that would have meant that if they would have been put out of the synagogue, they would have lost uh, much of their social, economic benefits. Uh, some may have lost jobs. They may have lost family. Uh, if they owned a business, that business would be shut down. I mean, this was drastic. It wasn't just like you're not going to be a part of the church, the, the synagogue. No. It's your life is going to change. Like things are about to get drastically different for you. But look at what he says next. That's if they even keep their lives. He goes on, he says, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. So if excommunication and societal ostracism weren't enough, Jesus goes on to say, like, you're, you might face death. Like, death is headed your way. And it's going to happen by those who think they're doing what? Service to God. A as if they're doing God a favor by persecuting these Christians. Uh, the Apostle Paul is a great example of this, right? Before his conversion, uh, when he was known as uh, Saul, he was a persecutor of Christians. And when telling his testimony, uh, in a few different places we can pick it out, but especially in Acts 22, Paul says, I was persecuting the church and I was doing it to show my zeal 
for God. Now, obviously, we know that after conversion, Paul realized that was wrong. But there was a persecution by people whose minds were, were so just uh, disillusioned of who Jesus was that they persecuted Christians thinking they were doing service to God. Jesus knows that persecution is coming, but he wants his people, he wants his followers to be prepared. So he says in verse 4, the beginning, but I've said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may what? You may remember that I told them to you. In other words, when the promised persecution comes, your greatest strength is remembering what I have taught you. Remembering these things that I have taught you. Remember my words. And listen, here's what this means for us, friends. Just like the disciples we need God's word to keep us from sinning when faced with persecution. We need God's word. Just like the disciples, our greatest threat lies not in what the world can do to us. Like, that's not our biggest threat, friends. The biggest threat is that we would sin against our Creator. The, the biggest threat on our lives would be that we would fall into the ways of the world, and to then deny God, deny our profession of faith. And what we see here is that Jesus says that we need to read God's word, right? That's, that's how we do this today. We, we go to his word. We, we trust the word of God. But we also need to hear the word of God preached. That is how we are continually reminded of the word of God. And this, according to Jesus, will prepare us for what is ahead. Let me just remind us all that proclaiming the gospel during times of persecution is the most powerful testimony to a watching world. Like, when you're going through difficulties and you stand firm on the truths of Scripture, when, when you stand firm on the Word of God, you are screaming from the mountaintops that Jesus is King. You proclaim the gospel of Christ. You proclaim that while this world may bring hardships, Jesus is worth it. And that, friends is the greatest apologetic that you will ever bring to the world. Jesus' departure, he says here, is going to provide them with that opportunity. He says, I'm leaving. You need to remember these things. You're going to be persecuted, but it's going to be for good. You will bear witness. Second. We see that Christ's departure produces the Spirit's arrival. Uh, the second part of verse 4, we see, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. 
But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So Jesus didn't talk much about impending danger because he was still there absorbing the blows. I mean, most of the hostility, the anger uh, towards the way, towards Christianity, was towards Jesus. The disciples, although they were a part of it, they weren't getting all of the, the attack. They, they weren't being threatened as like our Savior was. I mean, Jesus has been the focus. He, he's been the bullseye of the Jews' hostility, their anger. But now that Jesus is leaving, what's going to happen? The apostles will take up the mantle of gospel proclamation. And they will, resulting in them stepping in front of the crosshairs of persecution themselves. Jesus says, I'm leaving. You're going to go forward. You will go forward. The disciples are sad about this. I mean, rightly so. I mean, these men had given up their lives for Christ. Uh, They had committed themselves to Christ. Uh, They had turned away from what they knew, and they had followed this man who claimed to be the Savior. I mean, Jesus called them to it. They obeyed, and now they are being told, I'm leaving you. And as a result, these brothers, these disciples, they're sorrowful. And so what do they do? What do we do when we have sorrow? We think about ourselves. We think about our situation, our circumstance, how everything affects us, and we often navel gaze so much that we fail to think of others. Oftentimes we fail to think of of God even in situations of hard circumstances. I mean, think about it. Undesirable things come our way. And what's our first response? This is me. I'm talking to myself here. Like, man, this stinks. Like, this really stinks for me. But what we should, as God's people, be thinking about is, God, how can you use this for your glory? God, this is not good. I know this will not last God, help me to see how this can be used to proclaim the name of Christ, how this can bring you glory, how this situation can bring much honor to the name of Christ. I mean, this is what's happening here. These disciples, as we see, are, I mean, they're just looking at themselves. They're sorrowful. They're upset. They're grieving their situation. They're can't think of anything else. And how does Jesus handle this? I mean, how does he deal with their sorrow, their grief? I mean, he's, he's comforted them many times before. But here, Jesus is on a mission. He has a mission to fulfill. So here's what he says in verse 7. So nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come 
to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. First, I want us to take notice that Jesus doesn't change his plan based on their feelings. He doesn't change what he planned to do based on their uh, uncomfortable ideas of, of what it's going to bring to them. Like, he doesn't change. And I, I bring that up to just say, listen, friends, God's plan is far greater than our plan. So no matter what we may be going through, no, no matter what may be coming, no matter what we are in, God knows what is best for his people. Jesus loves his people. Jesus knows his people. And Jesus plans for the best for his people in all circumstances. But what he says here is quite shocking. He says, it is for your good. It's for your good that I am leaving because when I leave, I'm going to send something, someone who's better for you. And how is this? I mean, we're in a day and age where we think there could be nothing better than being in the time of walking with Jesus. Like, what could be better than being face-to-face as the disciples were with Jesus then? What could be better than hearing the teachings of Jesus? What could be better than watching the miracles of Jesus? I mean, how can his departure be a good thing? I mean, it's, it's really mind-blowing. John Calvin writes here, speaking of this, quote, far more advantageous and far more desirable is that presence of Christ by which he communicates himself to us through the grace and power of his spirit than if he were present before our eyes, end quote. Two things to think about here. One, the body of Christ could only be in one place. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The body of Christ was limited to one place. So he could only comfort a few at a time. He could only be with one group of people. He could only be in front of so many. But now, with the full outpouring of the Spirit, Jesus can comfort all believers at all times. See, that's good news for us, friends. We have, if you are a Christian, you have the ability to communicate with Christ through the Spirit's work and through the work of the Word. Richard Phillips writes here, the choice is not between Christ present and Christ absent, but between Christ present in body and Christ present in the Holy Spirit. So, so we don't look back on those days and think, like, that, that was the glory days. If we could have just been there. See, I, I think we miss a lot here and now with the church. But, like, we feel as if we're, we just got to wait for for the good times to, to come back in place. And yes, we can't wait to be face-to-face 
with God. But the Spirit will still be in us, working through us. Second, just point to note, is that salvation is only possible if Jesus successfully accomplishes his work on the cross and ascends to heaven to eternally reign as king and then sends the Spirit to apply his accomplished work to believers. So Jesus accomplishes salvation. The Spirit applies the work of salvation. He's applied it to the believers in this room and all around the world. Every Christian that has ever been a believer is because of the Spirit's work in their life. Jesus accomplishes. Where is Jesus Christ right now? Seated at the right hand. He is ruling and reigning currently with the martyrs, with all those that have gone before. He is ruling. He is in his heavenly reign right now. When, if the Lord should tarry, we, we die, we will, we will be with him, or he will return and bring his kingdom here. I mean, this is the promise of Christianity, friends. And this happens now. If you turn back in your Bibles to John chapter 7, we, we see John say in verse 39, and he gives us here a clue of to what this means and how this is going to happen. <clears throat> and as speaking here, when Jesus was talking about the, the Holy Spirit and how it was going to come as rivers of living water and, and what that would look like, but what does he say? And this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So the Spirit for as yet the Spirit had not been given. Why? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Christ needed to be glorified, needed to be glorified after his resurrection, his ascension, seated at the right hand, and then the Spirit would be applied to those who believed. Another quote here, because I think this is helpful. Flesh and blood might have liked better to keep Christ on earth, eating and drinking, walking and talking. But it was far better for the souls of men that Christ should finish his work, go up to heaven, take up his office there in the Holy of Holies, and send down the Holy Spirit on the church and the world. We have a phenomenal opportunity as New Covenant Christians. We have an amazing opportunity as the church today. We have access to God through the Spirit, the Spirit of God in us. We have the Word of God written to us. May we not be people that just, like, just wait just sit around waiting for the great good day when Christ returns. No, may we live as people who are empowered by the Spirit of 
God. I don't want us to live like those that are powerless. I don't want our church to be the, the chosen frozen that, that sit and wait for things to happen. I, I want us to be active in this world, evangelizing, proclaiming the, the kingship of Jesus Christ, sharing the gospel, calling sinners to repentance, living in a way that would adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the things of this world. See, that's what we're called to do, to be active in this world. We'll see that later when Jesus prays in John 17. It's like, I I don't want you to take them out of the world. They're going to be in the world, not of the world. Why do you think he wants us to do that? So we would be ambassadors for his kingdom. You have the Spirit in you if you are a Christian. And Jesus' departure provided that opportunity. It provided and brings the Spirit. He, he sends the Spirit to us. And that is a great and glorious thing for us as his people here and now. Third, Christ's departure brings greater clarity to the gospel. Christ's departure brings greater clarity to the gospel. Verse 8, and when he comes, so the Spirit, I'm going to send the Spirit. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Stop there. So here, after the promise of the Holy Spirit's arrival, Jesus provides clarity on what will happen when the Spirit comes. Now, this doesn't refer to the Holy Spirit's first arrival in the world. He was always present in Old Testament saints. He's always he's been there in creation. Uh, he's a part of the, the Trinity, the, the eternal Godhead. The Spirit is eternal. What Jesus is saying here, this term Coming in this context refers to his greater power and influence upon mankind after the ascension of Christ, particularly on the day of Pentecost. Okay? So he's saying that it's going to be a greater way. There's going to be now not spirit with, but spirit in. Spirit in us. This marked the beginning of a significant expansion of his influence on human nature. What we're told here about the Spirit is that he will convict the world. Now, I want us to take notice here, too, that the Spirit is a person. Uh, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but it's, uh, it's important to notice this here again. The Spirit is not some force. The Spirit is not some feeling. The Spirit is a person, is a person, and is the Holy Spirit. We ask the Spirit to work as if we are talking to a person, not a force. And here the word convict means to expose. So the the Spirit is going to come. The Spirit is going to do some work. 
He's going to convict. He's going to expose to, to show fault. And he's going to show fault to the world. What does the world mean here? Uh, the world, as John typically uses it, means like the systems of the world, the evil systems of humanity here. Now, this would also point to those that were unbelievers. And so it says what Jesus is speaking about here and what this passage tells us is that the Spirit is coming in this context to convict, to show the world their wrong. And this passage had some very immediate implications to his disciples. I mean, we're going to see in the verses ahead that while the world will be convicted, the disciples will be driven to truth. We'll see that next week, Lord willing. Jesus says he's going to guide you to all truth. If you recall, over and over in the Gospel of John, we see this separation between uh, Christians, believers, and unbelievers, the world. There's a distinct contrast here, and that's what's happening and here Jesus is saying that when he leaves, the Spirit will continue in the work of marking off his people from the world. And he provides three categories of the work of the Spirit in this context. What does he say? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Look at verse 9. So concerning sin... He gives a reason. Because they do not believe in me. So the world does not believe in Jesus. Therefore, it is in sin. See, unbelief is the greatest sin of all because it leads to all other sin. I mean, if you don't believe in the truth of Christ, you, you do not believe in the words of Christ. The commands of Christ. You can be the greatest person to ever walk this earth, but your morality is worthless if you do not have Christ. You must believe in Jesus. There is no other way. It is Christ and Christ alone that saves. I mean, I think this is why Jesus points out that the Spirit's going to convict them of unbelief, and the unbelief is that they don't believe in me. See, a lot of people in our day and age, especially here in America, you know, they say, you know, I believe in God, you know, the big man upstairs, or, you know, some other, uh, you know, the big guy, you know, yeah, God, or some spiritual force or some being. But when you start to get personal about Jesus, see, that causes people to pause and reflect They've got to then decide, what am I going to do with this man, Jesus, who uh, died for my sin? Because then I've got to admit I'm a sinner. And then I have to submit my life and follow and obey his teachings. See, that's where the rubber meets the road for most people. That's when things get difficult. When you point them to Jesus, sure, you can have many spiritual conversations. 
They're talking about God or their idea of God. But when you get to the, the person and work of Christ, that's where they have to make a decision. And that's why Jesus says here, I believe that their unbelief is because they don't believe in me. He goes on, he says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. So what does this mean? What is this righteousness that he speaks of? So if we remember, Jesus is resurrected. And after this, he's ascended to the Father. And the world will see that he was a righteous man because they will see that he wasn't a liar or a deceiver. See, Jesus had said, I'm going to the Father. I will return to the Father. I came to do the work of the Father. Kill me, I will raise again in three days. The temple, right? And here, Jesus is saying that I have proven, I will prove upon my resurrection when I send the Spirit after my ascension, I will prove that all that I said I was is who I am. He's a truthful Savior. He meant what he said. In Luke 23, 46, uh, we see that some of this happened even before he ascended, before the Spirit was, was sent to do this work specifically. While dying on the cross, in Luke's account, says, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Certainly. Think about right before that. Jesus is between two thieves on the cross. And they had been ridiculing Christ. But what happens? One of them changes and says, actually, I don't think he deserves to be here. It's my paraphrase. He shouldn't be here. And what does Jesus say to him? Today, today you will be with me in heaven. It's the work of the Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit. And listen, now, those that take an honest look at Jesus Christ, maybe that's you in here. Maybe you've never took an honest look. Maybe you've not truly asked is Jesus real? Is all that Jesus claimed true? Friend, let me encourage you. If you take an honest look at Christ, and if you ask God, ask the Spirit to work in your heart, and you plead for the forgiveness of your sins through Christ and Christ alone, 
Scripture tells us that we will be saved. We will be saved. And that is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Next, we see that concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So right now, Satan is the ruler of this world. Right now, the world, the systems of the world is the work of the devil. But he doesn't just work freely. All that he does is under the control, the sovereign hand of God. While God does not create evil, he does allow evil to work for his purposes. Scripture says that over and over again. But what we see here is that the devil is at work in the sons of disobedience. He, he is the ruler of the unbelievers. Paul reminds us in Ephesians, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But listen, the good thing is that Satan's judgment has been rendered. Like Satan has been found guilty. Christ is king. While Satan still does work now, he will not do work eternally. See, when Christ returns, Satan will pay. He will be cast down into the lake of fire with eternal torment for him and all of his followers. My prayer is that that is none of you in here today. My, my prayer is that none within the sound of my voice would find themselves to be of the unbelievers. Colossians 2, 15, Paul writes, He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing, over them in him. See, Jesus has defeated Satan eternally. The Spirit shows us the Spirit is, or that Satan is defeated. He may have influence now, but that influence is short-lived in relation to eternity. So the Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the result of this is better clarity of the gospel. We're able then to, to, to better point people to the truth of Christ. This is what happened after Pentecost when Peter preached the great sermon where 3,000 people were saved. If you turn over to Acts chapter 2, not too far in your Bible, I want to just look at a few things here as we see this take place. We'll take a quick survey. Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Look at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You, look at this language, you 
crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What do we see here? The sin of unbelief in Jesus. They didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was, so they killed him. Jump down to verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So what is Jesus? Exalted. Where is Jesus? At the right hand of God. What is this? Christ's righteousness. He is the righteous one. He was vindicated. It is Christ and Christ alone. We go down and we look at verse, the end of 34 and 35, where Peter is continuing to, to preach here, and he says, The Lord said to my Lord, he's talking about a prophecy here, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What do we have there? Judgment. See, Christ will rule eternally with all of his enemies beneath him, with all of his enemies below Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, either in worship or because of the judgment. And that's what we see. So listen, friends, this is a, a formula for evangelism. A very simple formula that a lot of us want to avoid. It's sin, we're sinners, it's Christ and his righteousness that we need, or it's judgment. If we do not repent and believe, there will be judgment. And the only way that any of this works is through the power of the Holy Spirit as he brings greater clarity to the gospel that salvation is available through the risen Christ. In closing, I want to look back at our brother Martin Luther. This past Tuesday marked the 506th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, which began when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to uh, the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany in 1517. By 1521, uh, Luther was excommunicated from the church. And during his trial at the Diet of Worms, Luther faced accusations of heresy. He had been deemed a heretic. He had been excommunicated the church of his day. He was given a chance to renounce, to recant his statements, to renounce his beliefs in order to be forgiven and brought back into the fold. And here's what Luther said when he was faced with persecution, 
faced with the threat that he would be burned alive. And we know we could go through church history, we could see many martyrs that did the same thing, that actually did face an immediate punishment. But here's Luther's reply, which is very popular in our day. Here's what he said. My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I, therefore, cannot and will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. End quote. What gave Luther the strength, the courage to stand there with the faith, with the, in the face, with the threat of persecution, the Holy Spirit. What gave him boldness? The Holy Spirit. What allowed him to, to carry out the work in which the Lord called him to? The Holy Spirit. In church, that same Spirit is here working in and through every Christian in this room. So friends, may we be bold. May we trust that although Christ is not physically, bodily present, his spirit is with us every second of every day. And may we live like that. May we be bold in the face of opposition. May we show love to those who need it. May we do things to point people to Christ, not us. May we serve willingly, openly, not begrudgingly because nobody else does it, but joyfully because we have the opportunity to serve God's people. May we be ambassadors for Christ in this day and age, as the disciples were in theirs. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have a plan for each and every person here. We thank you for Jesus Christ, for salvation for the joy it is to be counted among the elect, those that have been called out of darkness, those that have been regenerated by the power of the Spirit. May we be a people that live as you have called us to live. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can go to your word and that your Spirit will work in and through your word, as we seek to understand it accordingly. May you be with every individual here in this space today. May you work in and through and apply this passage application as you see fit. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.